Welcome back to the uh, second edition of Wimes Bombs. This is my podcast. I'm your host, Mike Wimes, and we're going to be talking about sports today with favorite and first repeat guest, the show, Kamal Yichur. Welcome back, Kamal. Hey, good to be here, Mike. So, we're going to be, uh, we're going to first get into the, the Masters, which, which took place over this past week. Wanted to uh, get the thoughts on the events that transpired we can uh kind of relive some of those uh key key moments that make the tournament one to not forget <laughs> let's get into it so the real story of the masters is gotta be jordan spieth coming in he won the tournament last year he was leading through um 72 holes right 54 i think 54. 54, three rounds, yeah. So he was leading through 54 holes, and then um, suddenly bites the apple, uh, takes the apple on 12. So um, what, what, what really happened there, uh, if, if you want to go into your um, analysis, Kamal? Sure, sure. So, I mean, we have to understand that golf isn't a great place right now, for starters. Um, this is the first time I can remember since following the game that all the young star, all the all the stars at the top of the world are are all in their twenties, right? <clears throat> and we typically think of golf as an older player's game, um, so it's pretty incredible. And Jordan Spieth, you know, here here's this kid, twenty two, twenty two, and he's well on his way to to winning a second green jacket, which you know very few people have done. This guy has complete control of his golf game, was blowing away the field. Everyone was coming into the tournament playing well. Everyone from, you know, prior champs, Phil Mickelson, Bubba Watson, and, you know, contenders like Jason Day, who just won number one ranked player in the world, having won two tournaments in a row coming in. And other guys like Rory McIlroy, Adam Scott, they're on their game as well. And we're, we're coming into this final round, and sure, there's some players within striking distance, but the story is Jordan Speed. He was leading after 18, leading after 36, leading after 54. You know, there's always this, this adage around Augusta National, which is the Masters doesn't start until the back nine on Sunday. Um, and it's, it's a little quirky, and, and for people who maybe not, aren't as familiar with the Masters, may not really make much sense, but essentially they, the club sets up the back nine on Sunday um, in historic, traditional Sunday pin locations. Now, what that means is Every single Masters they've ever had all have the, the holes and the parts of the green in the exact same places they've had them for, for years and years, right? So fans and players both know all the slopes that feed into all the holes and know if you wait, hit wait, it here. Wait, so, wait, so, so, but in the previous three days they are not like this? Right, so oh, okay. that's the thing. They, they typically have the, the hole on each of the four rounds in four different quadrants, right? Okay. But what they do is um, the way they set up the course on Sundays to try to bring fireworks, you know, make a, a lot of risk-reward holes, right? So 13 and 15 down the stretch are both par fives that are each goal in two, which bring eagle into the equation. But what they do is they put the, the pins really close to the front of the green, and there's water in front of the green. So if you try to be too aggressive trying to make eagle, you can hit in the water and actually make bogey or double, right? Mm. So uh, it's a lot of room for air here and there. So so here we are, you know, front nine, no one's really making much of a move. Spieth is even on his day after five holes, maybe has a 
you know, holding on to one stroke, two shot lead, that sort of thing, right? Right. Then he, the, the kid just birdies six, birdies seven, birdies eight, birdies nine. And before you look up, he has a five shot lead. And at that point, it's more of just a coronation as opposed to a golf tournament. Finished 18 under last year. Is, is he going to come come back strong with with with, an, with another like eight eight under tournament finish this year you know at the turn how high is Jordan gonna get it wasn't really like this is in doubt this is a play for two right exactly and it, it was a race for second place no one else was really putting much pressure on him and and Spieth is the kind of player that when he's at the top of the board he he has a little bit of an intimidation factor and starts to demoralize the the competition anyway so he goes to ten makes book bogey there, so he's at 6 under, only up by 4, but 10's a very difficult hole, and so is 11, you don't really think too much of it, um, bogey's 11 also, he tried to, you know, he can maybe chalk it up some nerves, or to hear him say it after the round, uh, when you have that big of a lead, you're just trying to not make any mistakes, and sometimes when you, when you, you know, take your foot off the gas a little bit, you start leaving yourself open, leaving yourself open to more mistakes, right? And so that's what happened in ten eleven. And meanwhile, the pack was tightening a little bit. So at this point, Danny Willett, the young Englishman who, to be honest, was not really on many people's radar, even even golf fans, despite being twelfth in the world before the tournament, had put himself in position there at like three four under. And then we get to the 12th hole, which we'll, we'll all remember for a long time. So, so Mike, the 12th hole at Augusta National is the shortest hole on the course, okay? Mm-hmm. It's only about 145 yards or so. There's water and a bunker in front and a bunker back. But the wind really starts to swirl in this part of the golf course, and it's, it's an iconic hole. All you really are thinking is put it somewhere on the green and try to two-putt get your three and move on to the par five, which you can probably birdie in 13. Be he had a decent shot. It carried up on the bank there and had its backspin and rolled down into the water. Now, that that in itself is, you know, difficult shot. Many people have hit in the water there on the back nine Sunday. But it's uh, it wasn't a, a mistake which you couldn't bounce back from, you know? I think he, he kind of snowballed from there, and he hit his third shot in the water after a questionable drop. Or, as Jordan would say, we hit our third shot in the water. <laughs> That's right, because uh, he and his caddy clearly are both playing the tournament. But yeah, so you know, a lot of people are questioning this decision that he made in retrospect. What you can do in the situation where you hit the ball in the water is you can either drop it in the drop zone, which is you know right next to where the the water is, and, and you take have to a be, penalty, right? Yeah, you'll make yeah. a thirty-five, forty-yard shot um, to the hole for your third shot. Or you can you can drop it anywhere along the line in which it crossed. So for Jordan, that meant he wanted to go as far back as possible to give himself a full shot, maybe an 80, 85-yard shot or something like that. To the, to the average fan, that seems like a mistake, right? You're going farther back. But for most golfers, they don't have as much practice with the, these random distances where they might have to take a three-quarter swing or, or a half swing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They're more comfortable using a full swing, especially under pressure. Uh, I'm, I'm definitely with you on that. His, his mind's racing a million miles an hour at this point. He, I personally think that this might not have been the decision that cost him the Masters, but it was the next swing that cost him the Masters. He, he hit it really fat. And we're, we're talking 
Rex Ryan pre-lap band fat. It, mm. it was it was bad. And as soon as he hit it, he turned away and knew. He pretty much knew at that point part blue masters, right? He hit a shot that any weekend duffer you'll, you'll see on the pub links will, will hit. My young. Know, it was about an 80, 85-yard shot. He hit it about 60 yards and didn't even come close to clearing the water. Then he dropped his fifth in the bunker, chopped out, made seven, made a quad, and Danny Will at the same time made birdie on his hole in 14 or 15, and speed was four back at that point. That's just too many too many strokes to make up. Not enough time. E- e- even with these uh, big par fives coming up, when you do something like that, it's you lose all of the momentum you build, you know, a mental momentum killer, as opposed to more the times when you are just, like, not able to execute properly. This one is a, is a clear, like, mental, one of these pure, like, mental mental moments where you're not going to be able to uh, just recover from that. The, the pressure got to you, lack of execution, it, it just became... Too, too overwhelming at this state. Right, and I mean, there's two things here. Um, one, how is he going to respond? How is he going to bounce back from this? Is this the kind of thing that stays with you for a while, that, that really haunts you next time he's under the gun and pre- under pressure? I mean, but it, this, this, this wasn't a double bogey. This wasn't no. a triple bogey. This was a quad. Th- these things, you, you rarely see them at the top of the leaderboard on a uh, day four of a major tournament. Right, and it, it's something that, the, the kind of thing is, I mean, Jordan is young, right, he, and, he, and he's won before. You yeah. rarely see these kind of collapses from people who've done it before, who are champions and know what it's like to be in that position. A lot of people are pointing to his youth, you know, he's 22, is this a sign of youth? I don't think so. I, 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 I think he was 21 when he won it last year. Right, <laughs> and I, don't, I honestly think it's, it might actually be, it might come from another issue, which I don't think the golf world is paying enough attention to, which is that we've never seen a player this good rise to the top of the world rankings be this poor relative to his peers at ball striking. Mm. Jordan Speed doesn't hit the ball nearly as far as these other guys that are the best players in the world, like Rory McIlroy or Jason Day. Doesn't hit as high, doesn't hit as consistently as straight, but he gets it done with... You know, immense course management skills. He knows where to miss it, knows how to limit his mistakes, and he's an extraordinary putter, right? Yeah. Now, if you if you take that two of those things out of play, which is, you well, know, the course the, management... The, and the, the, yeah, yeah. Hey, if, 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 you, if you can't manage your risks uh, within the course and you don't have the, the raw power to over... To, to kind of make those risks um, mitigated, then you may be in for trouble. Yeah, and I think that probably played into his psyche here. He's, he probably knew, I mean, anyone could see that he was kind of fighting a swing all day. He was missing a lot of shots to the right, both Saturday and Sunday, making a lot of uncharacteristic mistakes. I think Jordan Spieth was also questioning whether he, you know, could kind of hang on, so to speak, and he was trying to stop being aggressive, and he... I mean, it sounds silly to analyze this in retrospect. The guy had a five-shot lead with nine holes to go. But it's something that's probably going to come up time and time again as he, the expectations on him are, are really high. But, you know, one thing just to wrap up this, this part of the conversation is, you know, he, when Rory McIlroy famously in 2011 had a three-shot lead on the 10th hole trying to win his first major and had an epic collapse and, and finished outside the top ten, the very next tournament, the U.S. Open at Congressional, 
he won his first major by eight shots. And it wouldn't surprise me if, if Jordan Spieth did something similar next next month, or June, rather, at Oakmont. Tell me something I don't know about Danny Willett. He was ranked 12th going in, into the, the tournament, 19th at the end of 2015. But as uh, as a more casual golf f- fan than uh, you are, I've never heard of this guy until he won the Masters. And and this happens all t- all too f- all too frequently th- these days. Funny story about Danny Willett. So he his wife was supposed to give birth to his first child, and the due date was actually Sunday of the Masters. And uh, he wasn't going to play. He wasn't even going to come over and tee it up if the baby was coming. <clears throat> the baby came last week, about nine days early, and so he was free to come here and play, and he won. And so not even playing in the Masters to get being a father for the first time and winning by three all in the same week, so to speak. So would you call his child a $1.9 million baby? <laughs> I think you could say that, perhaps. His name is Zachariah, which is... Not the first name I would pick for a, a baby, but that's neither here nor there. Neither here nor there. <laughs> All right, so who um, really disappointed you, other than Spieth, uh, as far as their per- per- performance in the in the Masters? You know, the, the obvious answer here is Phil Mickelson. I think, mm-hmm. you know, Phil Mickelson is a, is a game that's just very well suited to Augusta. He... And he knows the course better than almost anyone in the entire field. He's won three times, you know. Yeah. And normally you can you can Phil is a wild card, but you can typically, generally speaking, predict his success at Augusta based on how well he's done mm-hmm. in the tournaments leading up to it. And this year he's actually had a pretty decent run. He had a few top five finishes, got second at Pebble Beach. Yep. And he missed the cut. And missing the cut at Augusta is a lot worse than missing a cut at any other tournament. Why is that? First of all, this year's Masters only had. I believe, 89 players, okay? Or 87 players, something like that. Mm-hmm. Top 50, 55-ish players make the cut. So right there, as it is, you know, you're already thinking about two-thirds of the field make the cut. Now, of like the 30-odd players that missed the cut, the Masters is unique in the sense that any former Masters champion, no matter how old or how quote-unquote retired they are, is eligible to play. Right. So you have guys well into their 60s, players like Ian Woosnam, who really should not be out there taking up a, a spot in the field. 1991. You know, throwing up a couple 80s and missing the cut. Then you, you have a handful of, of amateurs who, another thing that makes the Masters special is the U.S. Amateur Champ, the British Amateur Champ, the Asian Amateur Champ, all, all these kids, you know, who have never played a professional golf tournament for the most part are in the field. Those guys throw up their 80s and miss the cut too. So, so really, if you have maybe 65, 70 guys who have a legitimate chance of, you know, doing well in the Masters, and top 55 of those make the cut. It just shows what a disappointment left you was this week. Yeah, I mean, th- th- that was one name I was surprised to see there uh, not not ma- making the cut. And um, it, it just goes to show that, I mean, it can, there is a lot of variance in this game. And, and Mike... Uh, and a fun fact about Phil, which you know the average sports fan may not know, is he has never been the number one ranked player in the world, despite his continued run of success over two decades. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's sort of. I'm, I, I imagine he, he he won two Masters in three years, right? And I imagine he was um, logging the twos 
two spot during during the Tiger era, right? Yeah, and th- you know, there's been so many players since the Tiger era who have held number one. It just it just never worked out for him, mathematically speaking. I think part of that is due to his inconsistencies. He might have had a lot of high finishes, but while other guys are putting up top tens, top fifteens in tournaments, are not maybe playing all that well. Phil is missing the cut there, you know. Does he have sort of like a- Andy Roddick versus Roger Federer not being able to acclaim of being the the, the best uh, person in in his sport because he kind of just ha- didn't come and didn't peak at the right time as uh, when that someone else was. You know, I think you can make the case for a lot of a lot of people in the Tiger era. I, I don't. I think history is not going to forget Phil Mickelson. I, I think. Yeah. Well, if I mean, you if you stack the the greatest players to ever play golf, um, mm-hmm. if Phil Mickelson retired today, even though he never reached number one at any single given point in time, I, I think he's still in the top twenty players to ever play. That, I, I think. I think that's pretty fair. Like there, there are like eight people who have won three or more Masters, and so. And he is, and he is one of them. And he's the only one that was still playing in this year's Masters. Yeah, and, and you know, all allies will be on Phil at Oakmont in June for the U.S. Open, mm-hmm. simply because you know he's still chasing that elusive U.S. Open for his career Grand Slam, and right. he's gotten in second place six times, which has been well documented. <laughs> I mean, like you, you, you figure at some point. You're gonna, you're gonna be due, and you know he might be running out of years. You know, let let's, let's face it. He's a he's forty five. Forty five. I mean, the oldest major champion ever was a guy named Julius Boros at forty eight, which that's is not that far away. That's a great stat that you just dropped right there. <laughs> um. All right. A- 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 any other final thoughts on on the on the Masters of twenty sixteen? You know, typically when, when guys like this, you know, I guess you can say he choked. It seems harsh, but Spieth choked. Um, you know, you remember this for a long time. You remember, you'll re- well, remember the 2016 Masters is the one that Spieth choked. But mm-hmm. to be honest, like, when Spieth made that quadruple bogey, he was at minus five before that hole. And Danny Willett finished at minus five. So even if Spieth parred, I mean, everyone thinks it's a foregone conclusion that Spieth would have won, but I think Danny Willett deserves a lot of credit for what he did, beating the field by three in a really difficult Masters. Let's give it up for Dan, Danny Willett, and uh, we'll uh, be, be keeping an eye on him as the uh, rest of the golf season progresses. All right, so let's switch gears here and talk about one of... The one of these records that people said would would never be broken, would never be touched. No team in National Basketball Association will ever win seventy two games again. And they, the Golden State Warriors, a team that we we've talked about offline a lot this season, with you, and I'm sure everyone in America has as well. Yes, but well, especially with you being in San Francisco. It's it, it, it must. Uh, what what has been the pulse of the 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 city? I mean, I'm. Well, I mean, it's exactly what you'd expect, right? And, and I think it's not just the Bay Area. The entire country's kind of swept up in Warriors mania, as, as they should be. They're they're a fun team to watch. You know, they they play basketball 
differently than we've seen teams play the game before. And I mean, I was in Chicago this weekend, Mike, and mm-hmm. you know, Chicago's a huge sports town, a huge tradition, all that stuff. They had the Blackhawks on one screen, they had the Cubs on another screen, they had the Bulls on the third screen at a bar. When that Warriors-Grizzlies game was coming down the stretch, <clears throat> they changed all three of the Warriors game. All three? All three. Even the Blackhawks? Even the Blackhawks are in the middle of, a, of you know, finishing up the regular season and getting ready for the playoffs here. Yeah. And I, I think and that, that, to me, is remarkable, that you know, the patrons of the bar are the ones that are asking for this. You know, it's like... These are Chicago sports fans, and they they just want to see the Warriors and their quest for history. I think that it's a regular season game too. It's it's remarkable, and and I think what's funny for me is when when I say I'm a Warriors fan, I, I'm almost I almost feel like I need to caveat that I've been a Warriors fan since 2008, just to avoid being labeled a bandwagon fan. But but to be honest, I've had the similar problems with the Denver Broncos this year. <laughs> I mean, you, I can imagine, but to be honest, I don't really think that it's wrong to be a fan of this team as a bandwagon fan. I think if ever there was a bandwagon that it's worth joining, it's this one. <laughs> All right, so so this is something that, that that's that's interesting. So when you look at dynasties in other sports that we've had recently, right? Um, you, you look at the New England Patriots, right? And you look at going back to the, I mean, I'm most familiar with the, the New York Yankees dynasty. Sure. And so both these teams, both, and I'm sure there's, there's others that, um, but, but both these teams are like hated by a good fraction of the country. That's right? a great point. And, and the Warriors just don't seem to, ha- to incite that hate. And if you go back and you look at the, even the Chicago Bulls, while there was a bump across the country for them, the people on the West Coast didn't have the same sort of affinity for Michael Jordan. You still had a big, uh, a big fan of the the Jazz, the Suns, the Sonics. They were they were all all these challengers to the Bulls. They you didn't feel like that the whole. Um, that the whole nation supported the the Bulls, even though that's the closest team that we've had to being a uh, to being like a nationwide America's team. Yeah, I mean, I, it's a good point. It's a good observation. I, I can think of a couple reasons. One, they haven't had that level of sustained dominance over like three, four, or five years that we see of all these other dynasties you speak of. People, a lot of the reasons people hate dynasties are essentially just sick of it, right? They want to see someone else, right? I mean, th- th- that's why sports writers don't um, don't award like the right players the MVP. <laughs> that's also another point. That's good. Um, which, while we're on that tangent, I, I honestly think Steph Curry should win Most Improved Player of the Year as well. Uh, you, 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 you have him in that camp. I I, I, I don't want to put him in Most Improved Player. Because I just, I just feel like it kind of, it cheapens what, how the rest of the team has improved around him, and I think that's part of the big, that that's part of the big thing. I don't think it's just Curry's talent alone that it has um, caused the, this catalyst from a very good Warriors team that was able to win a title against a hurt Cleveland team. Last year to what we have here as an all-time historic team, I think that 
Um, if you if you say uh, Steph Steph Curry has the delta of Steph Curry has gone up so much, you're and he's been so improved. You don't you're not not considering the the amount of improvement Draymond Green has. You're not considering the game in, in improvement of the war of the Warriors bench. You're not not considering all these other factors that have made the Warriors be this extra successful team this year. You know, I don't think that point can be... I don't, I don't think you, you can make that point strong enough. And, and, and I'll tell you why. Because okay. the, the re- people think that the number one way to improve a team in sports is by acquisition, right? Whether it's the draft or free agency or whoever, right? It's all about players, yeah. But with the Warriors, you're seeing a team last year that achieved great heights. You know, 66 wins, mm-hmm. an NBA title. Yep. And all their players were, relatively speaking, their key role players were relatively young, with the exception of maybe Bogut. Mm-hmm. And young, and also none of them had hit their ceiling, right? They're all getting better by themselves as players, mm-hmm. but they're also getting better playing with each other. And right. both of those were, were the reasons they got better. And let's not forget the fact that Steve Kerr, this is his second, only his second year ever coaching a team of basketball. I mean, I don't know if he, he's done any YMCA when, when he was a kid, but I, I'm pretty sure he had never coached a basketball team at any level. But, I mean... How, how much training to be a coach do you need when you've spent so much time with Phil Jackson and Greg Popovich? You know, like well, the you, NBA you, is the only sport we see this happening. Well, you know, you, in the NFL, to be a head coach, you have to work your way up for like thirty years as a quality control assistant, defensive line at some unknown university, and then the, 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 there are thirty-three year olds that, that that become head coaches of the. Of the uh, NFL, look at how old was Mike Tomlin when he was uh, hired? Yeah, I mean you're right. There are exceptions, but but still, even a guy like Mike Tomlin who did his time like six eight years through the ranks of, of assistant coaching. The uh, idea that that's that Steve Kerr uh, doesn't wouldn't know how to go from one one to the other when he was uh, when he's been around such fantastic players on fan, on such. He's been on arguably the teams of two of the the past three dynasties in the NBA, and he's now uh, coaching the this one. You know? mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, I, I'm not. But I think the the key point I'm trying to make is that as much as you may or may not believe that Kerr was going to be a good coach, irrespective just because of the people he's been around, I think. Coaching, like almost any other job you can think of, has a lot of you know on-the-job growing pains and a lot of things you can get better at. And in the second year, there's no doubt that he's probably better than he was in his first year as at being an NBA head coach. I mean, the, the, uh, when you get into Steve Kerr, there's a lot of questionable things because there's this whole the whole back surgery narrative with him and the severe migraines that he gets and the Luke Walton undefeated aspect uh, of it. And you, uh, a lot of times, the coach get gets gets too much credit and too much blame in the NBA. Yeah, no, for sure. I, but, I, I think but, I think that all. So whether or not it's Kerr or back or whatever yeah. you want to say, I think all the players on this team and Kerr included as a coach have all shown growth from your from last year to this year. And and and, and, and that's fair, but I, I think at the same time, you um, there there is something about how Seth Curry has done this regular season 
that while dominant, it's I, 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 I don't feel comfortable giving him the most improved player. How many fourth quarters did Steph Curry play in? How many times was he trying to make a last-second shot? You know, he, uh, um, so many of the Warriors' games this year, they, the team it, itself was just so, was up by so many points that he just sat in, 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 the, in these quarters. You know, when you, when you compare the amount of um, minutes he logged in the fourth quarter to someone like Jimmy Butler, who played, on, uh, who played in the, almost the entire fourth quarter and, and logged more minutes than anyone else on Bulls, you, uh, it, it, it's, it's kind of hard to judge because those fourth quarter situations when a game is tight is very different than those situations when you're building a lead from 10 points to 15 points to 20 points to 25 points. Okay, let's sit. You know, you, you, you've already got all the, um, it's, it's more of, of a sustained momentum thing than being able to shift gears so much. And uh, like like we saw with so many of the Warriors win. Why like I'm more I'm more inclined if I had uh, a, a vote in the things not to give Steph Curry any um, any particular accolades on the most improvement side. He's definitely the MVP. But, yeah, yeah, I think I meant that but, a little more tongue in cheek than an honest award. I mean, but but like it's being talked about as as an honest as an honest award. Right? But, but you can, I think like, the reason why is you look at some of the numbers he's putting up. And, but I, I think, I, I, I honestly believe the spirit of the award is not to give it to a, a top player. Yeah, no, the, the spirit of the award is to give it to someone like Chris, Chris McCullough, who uh, <laughs> was the, the player that was a player very few people had on, on, on their, their radar going into the season, who's carried this Portland team that should be rebuilding. With CJ McCollum. McCollum, yeah. Yeah, that, I mean that guy is, deserves to win it for sure. Yeah. So like, uh, so like when <coughs> when you're taking things, when you when, and it's gonna be interesting to see how many votes will the Steph Curry writers take away from it in, in that respect. That uh, I guess that's something we can only speculate on un, un, until it, it occurs. So now, here's a question for you. If you are Steve Kerr, would you rest your players going into this meaningless game at 72 and 9? That's a joke, right? (laughs) No, it's not a joke. You've worked the entire year to have a chance at history, and this is the chance. But but you're already at history. You're at 72. No one's going for the tie. The entire season is about getting to 73 and 9. Well, the, the entire season was about having the longest win streak of all time, first of all. And then this is just icing on the cake. No, I, think the, I don't think the win streak was, was ever as meaningful to that, this team as beating the Bulls, you know? But if they beat the Bulls and then don't win a title, they... Obviously, are... no, no, one's, no one's talking about not winning the title. I mean, the title is, is always the goal here. But I think if you get to 73-9... and and you win the title, you have, just based on the numbers alone, staked your claim as the best team in history. And I think if you best, tie... The, the best the, single season team in history. Yeah, absolutely. And if you tie it at 72 and 10, then it's, you know, it, it loses some of its luster. It, obviously, it's still an incredible, incredible accomplishment. But that's not breaking the record. That's tying the record. Playing into, like, the Spurs' hands? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I think that the chances of the Warriors winning the title... 
if they had, you know, kind of shut it down a couple weeks ago and, and you know, just coasted to maybe another 66 and 16 or something, it might be marginally less than what it, what it would have been if they, they had rested and, and been fresh. But, you know, I, I think there is something to be said about playing really important games down the stretch and not, not taking that competitive break, so to speak, you know, laying off the gas. Because the, the team is still relatively healthy, Mike. Are, 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 are you worried about Festus Azili and, and Andrew Bogut? No, of course. But the team is still relatively healthy given what they're going through. I, like, I'll, I'll make the point. If someone like Draymond Green had, say, like a knee issue and was forced to miss like five or ten games, I don't think you see the team going all out trying to get 73. I think the team starts, you know, kind of mailing it in a little bit. Well, but the fact that all their key players are still going strong and kind of want this, and they all mm. made the decision as a team that they really want to chase this, I, I think it's something that they they really, is. it's important to them. Mm-hmm. Do you, do you, and, you know, all these guys already won a title. I, I think if, if they go, if they went 69 and 13, won the title, I think it would probably mean less to these guys than if they went 73 and 9. The title of foregone conclusion at this point. No, I still think in a seven-game, I think in a series against the Spurs, it, it's maybe not a flip of a coin. Maybe I would put the Warriors at like 52, 55%, something like that. But dude, I, dude, I think dude. I think the Spurs are a legitimate threat. And let's not count out OKC and the Clippers. Yeah, no, 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 no. Like, uh, uh, I think the better question is, assuming, like, uh, the I'm, I'm looking forward to the uh, hope, hopeful inevitable OKC Spurs series because that's going to be some crazy basketball. Yeah, and I think I think the Western playoffs will always be entertaining when you have teams that are this good, but I, I think if I was an odds maker, there's no way I'm not putting the Warriors as a favorite, right? Well, yeah. You're not putting... Like, there's they have 72 wins. Right, this but it's not over. No, they can't be. Like yeah. they can't be, they can't be the prohibitive favorite. They they just have to be the favorite. How do you stop the Warriors? If if you're the the Clippers, the Thunder, the Spurs, I think it's it's easier to um, start getting into chess matches and throw different defensive things at them over a long series uh, where it's like a story playing out than it would be to beat them on any given night. I think what you have to do is really play the, the Boston Celtics model uh, mm-hmm. of a, couple, a couple weeks ago. Is lock down the backcourt um, yeah, and well, like, force, f- force the frontcourt to beat you. Especially if you're at the if you're at Oracle, you really need to be tight on, on the perimeter defense because that um, that will get the momentum of the crowd, which is yep. which is the best crowd in the NBA. Yes, yes, it is. It, it, and it's remarkable considering that the um, majority of the crowd are bandwagon fans, and uh, it's in one of the oldest stadiums, it's not the oldest stadium in the NBA. And they're getting a new, smaller stadium, too, right? I don't think it's smaller, but it's definitely, it's laid open up in 2018 or 2019, close to where the Giants play in, in downtown San Francisco. What's going to become of, of this arena? Oh, it's it's really old, 30, 35 years old. I think it'll just go the way of other old arenas. So here is, um, so I, I, I want to, I'm going to name um, some some teams that the Warriors may, may play in the playoffs this year. I want you to tell me who the individual X Factor is. Yep. Okay. 
So, okay. um, the is the, are the Rockets making the playoffs with the eight seed right now? You know, that's a toss-up between the Rockets and the Jazz. Okay. I think as a Warriors fan, the Jazz scare me slightly more than the Rockets. Mm-hmm. Um, but I still think the Warriors will easily beat. Well, right. So if 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 it is the Jazz, who is the the player that needs to um, really 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 come to the table? I'll, I'll I'll take you to last year's playoff series against the Memphis Grizzlies. Memphis is a Similar exactly team. the type of big bruising team that can Similar give the Warriors exactly, a yeah. problem, right? And they're also really good at perimeter defense for the most part, and that, that, that was supposed to give the Warriors team a problem. Mm-hmm. Except for stretches on stretches in the games. Warriors were getting threes, and well, Memphis well, were getting twos. The, the, well, the, the Warriors also did, did the let's not cover Tony Allen strategy, and the, the Grizzlies haven't been the same team since. Exactly, and I think for Utah, their young players... Gordon Hayward, their, their scorer, their outside threat, mm-hmm. has to knock down outside shots because they need three-point shooting to keep up with the Warriors. You need to make at least ten threes to keep up the Warriors. And you're not really seeing much production from the point guard position. It's a, it's yeah. somewhat of a platoon right now between yeah. Shelvin Mack and, and maybe some Trey Burke, Raul Nato mixed in there. None of those guys are, are really scaring you with when you have Steph Curry and Clay Thompson in the backcourt. No. I know Derek Favors will get his. I know Rudy Gobert will be a force in in the paint. But you know, when the, when the Warriors chug out their small small lineup out there and are just jacking up threes and, and getting all the shots they want, you need to be able to match them scoring shot for shot at least for stretches in the game, so you don't fall mm-hmm. ten fifteen points behind, which is what happened to the Pelicans last year in, in playoffs. Basically, if you're if you're the Jazz, you you really need Gordon Haywood. To step up and and beat uh, and dominate Clay Thompson in that matchup, basically. Yes, yes. You, you need you need Gordon Hayward to to be both on offense and defense. And defense, yeah. Play. And and defense is, is the key thing. Um, speaking of def- defense on Clay Thompson, um, when when the when the Spurs play the Warriors, they typically stick uh, Kawhi, the the best player, on on Clay. What do you think of that strategy? Do you, do you think that the is that something Pop is gonna keep keep going to, or that they're gonna they're gonna mix up some of their schemes when Boris Diaw comes back into the game? I don't think uh, Pop will keep that the same. I, I honestly believe that he's been he's been uh, kind of playing his cards close to the vest in the regular season matchups against Golden State. I, I think it's Kawhi Leonard <clears throat> can guard anyone on any team, right? That's how good he is defensively. Yeah, he, he, and he, the Warriors... He, 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 he's go. a modern-day Scottie Pippen in, in that respect. A- absolutely. And, and with the way, the Warriors, the, the engine that kind of fuels them is Draymond Green, and, and when he runs that 4-on-3, I think yeah. I think Kawhi Leonard is definitely athletic enough to keep up Draymond Green. And Danny too. Green is certainly capable of guarding um, Clay Thompson for extended stretches of the time. But who do you put on Curry? Well, it it'd probably have to be Patty Mills in that sense because Tony Parker. Tony Parker is lost, too lost old and step. Too he, Like he, he really he's gonna be successful in the second unit when Livingston comes back on the floor. But when uh, I I I think Curry has the potential to go in bunches when 
he he gets matched up with Parker in this in this hypothetical series. Yeah, I, I can see I can see the Warriors' efficiency really. I mean, that's what we saw last night, right, against the Spurs mm-hmm. at in San Antonio was. The Warriors did not score very many points at all. They they got held to thirty five points in the first half, and yeah. they were being very their their offensive efficiency was very poor. The Spurs were stymieing their their double pick and rolls, their their gates, or what have you. But what ended up happening was when when they were shutting him down for periods of time, Steph Curry still got his shots, and Steph Curry is very aggressive when he was guarded by Tony Parker or he was guarded by less skilled defenders, and he he essentially the 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 Spurs shut down the Warriors' quote-unquote offense, but they couldn't stop Steph Curry. So I think the key player, if the Spurs do play the Warriors, is that you really need to see LaMarcus Aldridge play out of his mind. He needs, like, a Blake Griffin of last year's playoffs sort of performance. And I think LaMarcus Aldridge tends to... He takes too many mid-range jumpers. I mean, that's yeah, game. I, I, the best I was about to say long shooters. twos. But, I mean, and that's his game. He's, a, he's one of the best long two shooters in the league, but unless that's really, really hurting him, and uh, every single time Marcus Aldridge is making that 18-footer, the Warriors can just afford to stick their their center, like whether it's Bogut playing away and giving him that open shot and shutting down everything else around him. And I think that's a shot the Warriors will live with you know, majority of possessions in close games. He needs to be a factor defensively, coming up with steals, blocks, and, and big, big key, key rebounds that really will help tie the, um, slow down the fast breaks and maybe get them going, going the other way on the Spurs side. Does Marcus Aldridge have a spot in the court when the Warriors play their small, ultra-small lineup of Curry, Thompson, Barnes, Green. So you, if you're the Spurs, you have to counter that lineup with Kawhi, Mills, Diaw. It, it's it's a it's a question of can can Lamarcus and Diaw or Lamarcus and Duncan be effective on uh, in on defensively on that lineup? And I think it's possible. I'd like to see it, uh, see it in action. I'm not sure if there's a better. It, I mean, if you take him out, you just have. Diaw on green. Is that better? I'm not sure. But I also don't know if that lineup, if he, if that lineup would be able to do well at, in, in the paint. So if, if, if you go back to last year's finals, right, you got, you got a, a similar thing where you have LeBron and Tristan Thompson and Mazgat. Um, uh, yeah, so you have these three three bigs on the court, and they're just gobbling up every single offensive rebound. And that presented problems for the Warriors. They beat them, and they all, they should have won two of the first three games doing that yeah, strategy. I'm with you, on, but I actually think the only reason the Cavs even had a chance was with in that lineup, even with the way that, those, that strategy transpired, is... Matthew Dabadova going off, right? I think yeah. the Warriors are very well equipped, even when another team is just throwing a really big lineup out there, to withstand their slow, methodical, offensive, you know, just being stuck in the mud there and getting those rebounds, but still being able to play their game on offense. And but but uh, who's to say uh, Kyrie Irving can't go off in, in, in that scenario? Right. Now, now, are, are, are the Cavs in trouble? Are the are the Cavs gonna? Are, are they a potential upset? I, I I guess I guess we can talk about that. Yeah, I, I think that's in another our, podcast. In, in our, let's 
called it called a day. It was a uh, it was a pleasure to have you back on. And any any final thoughts? I do have one little piece of trivia that I'd like to uh, share with you. All right, lay it uh, on me. So um, since two thousand one, the Brooklyn Nets have only drafted two all star uh, players who have made an all star game. Okay. Um, um, can I tell you a guess? Sure. So they've drafted only two players who have eventually become an all-star? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, and hint, Kenny Martin was drafted in 2000, so it's not him. So, can I clarify? It wasn't one of these like weird draft day deals where the guy gets drafted for like five seconds and never actually plays for the Nets? That, I'm, I'm going by the, the basketball reference, the Nets... Drafted the guy. The guy holds the Nets hat. So, uh, so it can be one of those deals. Got it. Um, but like, if they trade the if they trade the pick before the draft, um, like, right. like, right. like, like, like to Utah for Enos Cantor, you know, that doesn't count. Was uh, Brooks Lopez drafted by the Nets? Brooks Lopez was drafted by the Nets. Is he so one of the answers? He's one of the answers. Okay. Um, was did Derek Favors ever make an All Star game? No. Um, what position does this guy play? Shooting guard. Shooting guard. Ooh. No, I don't know. Tell me. Kyle Korver. Wow. Second round cool. pick in two thousand three. Did he ever play a season great. for the Knights? No. Uh, that's, that's, that's a good one. Yeah, but like, uh, if, if uh, I was looking at this uh, as as a Brooklyn Nets fan myself, and I'm looking at the lack of All Stars, you know, they they basically had seven years of bad luck between Kenya Martin and Brook Lopez, and then before that, if you count um, not drafting Kobe, they had another seven years of bad luck. Well, drafting All Stars is hard now. I mean, let's not get carried away. Right, but well, uh, as far as as far as just uh, drafting qual- quality players between like uh, Derek Coleman, Kenny Anderson, you have a bunch of people who are not good. Then you have Kenny Martin and a bunch of people who are not good, and then Derek Favors who got traded for Darren Williams. So it's been it, it's been you can see why a team like the Nets may have. Um, looked at their draft history and said maybe draft picks are better used by other people. <laughs> All right, but with, with with that, I will let you go until next time. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. All right, been a pleasure.